wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. Links to our social media accounts and many other Bleeding Daylight episodes are at bleedingdaylight.net. Life can often be hard, but for my guest today, hard is only half the story. I'll introduce you in a moment. Please think about who else would benefit from hearing this episode and let them know where to find Bleeding Daylight. Why would a 19-year-old woman move halfway around the world to live in a country where she can't speak the local language and everything is so different to her home country of the US? Wendy Zahajanski has lived in several countries and has recently written a book about her experiences titled Hard is Only Half the Story. She joins us on Bleeding Daylight today to share some of that story. Wendy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go back to the time before you started exploring the world. Tell me about your earlier years. What was it like growing up in the US for you? I think I had a mostly a typical childhood in the United States. I grew up in the state of Arizona, which is on the West Coast, until I was 10. And then we moved to Vermont, which is on the East Coast, due to the fact that when I was six, my dad was in a plane accident and was killed. I said my childhood was typical, and that's probably not very typical. <laughs> that was kind of a defining moment or event in my childhood. But other than that, I had a really happy childhood. Nothing out of the ordinary. So certainly losing your father at an early age would have had a a big impact on your family. Tell me, what did your family look like at that stage? Who was in your family? We were a mess for sure. I have an older brother who's five years older than me. So he was 11 at the time. I was six and my sister's nine years older than me. And then my mom, of course. So it was very unexpected. He was healthy and an accident is obviously something that you can't see coming. So uh, we were a mess. I was a, I grew up in a Christian home. So we had a, those values of a strong belief that God existed and that everything happens for a purpose. And I think that was the thing that actually I struggled with the most was that if God was big enough to stop it, why didn't he? And why didn't he when he could see that my dad had children and a family and that he loved that he loved God, so why wouldn't he stop it? And I wonder if that was also with my brother and sister. I think that's that was a big reason that we moved as well from Arizona was because my brother started hanging out with kids who weren't being a good influence, and my sister ended up moving out when she was 18 and so I think all of us needed a fresh start. So we moved back to Vermont where my mom's family lived to kind of start over. And actually over the years, two years probably after we moved to Vermont, my sister ended up moving back in with us. And she had a little girl at that time. She ended up getting pregnant and then moving back home and having her little girl. And then I saw slowly this restoration happen in my brother and my sister where their faith was rebuilt. At that time, my brother got saved and my sister was already a believer, but really came back to the Lord after a long time of walking away from him and not really living uh, according to what 
she had said before that she believed. And one of my strongest memories is going to bed at night. My mom would be sitting in her chair and she would be reading her Bible and I would wake up in the morning and she would already be awake. She never sleeps. The lady is amazing. (laughs) I did not inherit that, but she really doesn't need a lot of sleep. And I just remember her reading her Bible and her faith never really wavered on the outside. So that was something that really was impactful for me. I imagine that it's those things that really do shake our faith and cause us to ask the bigger questions. And most of the time that happens at a much older age, that we we ask those robust questions and we find that we have a, a robust God. But yeah. for you, that was a, a very early start. How does a child actually start to ask some of those really big questions of, of faith at that stage? That's a good question. I, Of course, it's my experience, so I don't know. But I think that, and I, worked, I work with children a lot, and I have at children's camps and other in other settings. But I think that kids actually understand a lot more than sometimes they're given credit for. And I remember my mom was, tells me that she was trying to explain what happened to my dad and why he wasn't coming home and some of these things and trying to explain death, which of course is a very abstract concept for children. And finally, I came to her one day and I said, I get it, mom. Dad's body is in the ground, but his smile is in heaven. And that was my way of processing that his soul was with the Lord, which I actually think is really deep for a six-year-old. But I don't think that I was a genius or something like that. I do think that children, if we're patient to explain to them, they can understand those things. And I was really angry. I remember laying in bed screaming at night and so mad that my family was falling apart and that God wasn't there. And sometimes people in church would say things that were insensitive, even though they meant well, like everything works together for good to those who love the Lord or God has good plans for me. And I remember thinking, even at that time, maybe for you, but not for me, it was definitely a process of years, even though I was a child of years of being angry, but it must have been after I was 10 because we were living in Vermont that that was the first time that I had a friend who had also lost her dad to cancer And as we started talking, I realized that I wasn't the only one. And then I had another friend whose parents went through a divorce, which is not the same thing, but it is also really painful for children and confusing and all of these emotions that are similar. And so I realized that I wasn't the only one who had this pain and hurt within me and questions for God. I felt like I was the only one in the world, but that actually wasn't true. And that was actually very healing for me to realize the brokenness that everybody shares and that we can talk about those things. You say that, uh, apart from that obviously traumatic incident, that you had a a fairly happy childhood, you continued to grow up. And we fast forward to that time that I mentioned in the introduction, that at 19 years of age, you've decided that you're going to head halfway around the world. Tell me a little bit about that. What was it in you that made you think this is a good plan? There was a lot of factors (laughs) that were working together for that decision. But one of them was that I had already had a desire as a young child to be a missionary. I had read a lot of missionary biographies. My mom had a rule in our house for every fiction book we read, we had to bring one biography. And I loved reading. And most of the biographies I read were these missionary biographies. So they became my heroes the people like Gladys Aylward, the people like Hudson Taylor, 
Lilius Trotter, these people. And so I always wanted to actually be a missionary. But at 19, I had done one year of university, didn't want to study anymore. I didn't have the money to go back to university. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so my brother, my older brother lived in Kyrgyzstan at the time as a missionary. And he said, well, why don't you just come over here and figure it out? And I honestly couldn't think of a good reason not to. And so that's why I moved. And I moved over and started praying and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. So you spend a little bit of time there with him, just experiencing almost this missionary life. And I know that that prompted something within you and you realized there was action that you needed to take. What was the next step from there? Living there in Kyrgyzstan, which is predominantly Muslim, or Orthodox, the Russian population would be Eastern Orthodox. I had a one friend who was Muslim, and I'll never forget her. And it was the first time that I was talking to somebody who had absolutely no background in anything Christian. She didn't know who God was. She didn't know what the Bible was. And I realized that I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't explain my faith to somebody who had no background in faith. And also, there was a lot of questions that I still had in my mind. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to be... A missionary, if I'm going to commit my life to telling other people about Jesus and about God, I got to be sure that I actually believe it and I have to be able to explain it. So that's what led me to decide to go to a Bible college in Hungary. I just want to take a slight detour there. It's interesting that you're talking about this Muslim friend of yours who has no background in the Christian faith. Now that you've you've been through Bible college, and we'll explore that in a moment, and you, you've learned a lot more do you think sometimes for those of us in Western countries where we have this very strange at times Christian understanding or background that is not fully complete, that sometimes the background that we have can get in the way of truly understanding what the gospel is about? Absolutely. I absolutely think that it can. And I absolutely think that the side issues can become main issues when we're in those kind of settings where everybody kind of knows what we're talking about. But when I've been forced to filter it down to the basic, basic, who is Jesus? Who are we? Then it filters out those things. And I think it actually has made my faith a lot more grounded and a lot more simple because of those kind of people, this Muslim friend or other friends that I have who have no faith background. I was speaking to someone recently who said that we sometimes overcomplicate faith, and it sounds like you would have to agree with that, that the way of Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, is sometimes quite different from what we see as the life of someone at a church in the Western world. Yes, yes, I would agree. Tell me about that time that you went to Bible college in Hungary. How many years were you there? It was a two-year program, so I completed the two-year program, and then they had a year internship. So I stayed for the internship after, so altogether three years. So again, were you learning in English or were you still having to to cross language barriers there? Hungary was an exception. I didn't learn Hungarian. All of our classes were either in English or they were translated. I took some private lessons with one of the ladies who lived on campus who was Hungarian, but I didn't get very far. Hungarian is really complicated, (laughs) really, really complicated language. (laughs) And of course, being at Bible college, you didn't just learn more about your faith, learn more about how to share your faith, but something pretty special happened there too, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah, there I met my husband. He was also a student and we studied together for a while and we sang 
on the worship team together. And as we became friends toward the end of his two-year program and my internship, we started dating. And he started talking about how he was going to go back to Serbia, his home country, how he wanted to move eventually to central or southern Serbia, which is very unreached. And as he was talking about just this burden that he had from the Lord, really his burden was transferred to my heart and the Lord really broke my heart for Serbia and for the Serbian people. And so we ended up moving to Serbia together and getting married. And then a year after I had moved to Serbia and only two months after we had been married, we moved to plant a church in central Serbia. So this desire that he's had all along that became your desire, you you get to live it out. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. We often hear of people talking about God giving desires and opening doors And sometimes that happens, but sometimes those doors feel fairly jammed and there's a lot of stuff that has to go on before we get to walk through those doors. Tell me about some of those battles that you've faced. I mean, firstly, you're moving to a country again where there's a language barrier and you're having to be part of that culture. What were some of the difficulties that you faced in those early days? Oh, so many, so many difficulties. <laughs> and I have, I tell a lot of stories in, in the book I wrote about the difficulties. And I have tried to be really honest about some of the things that I went through because I do think that transitioning into a new culture and a new mentality and a new language, if you immerse yourself in it, it actually is really difficult. It's almost like I felt like the door that I was walking through was thrown wide open and I was running through the door and I ran through the door and then I fell off a cliff and it was like a free fall. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to smack the bottom and I'm going to die. I'm going to die. There's no, there's just a question of when it's not if it's when, and that's how the experience really felt for me. So much of my personality was stripped away when I couldn't communicate. I did full immersion. So I was learning, taking language classes. I was communicating in English only at home with Danny or when I talked on the phone with my family. Everything else I really tried to do in Serbian. So you can imagine how much I was talking in the beginning, hardly at all. And nobody knew me. Nobody knew who I was because of the language barrier. So I think that it was really stripped me down to the core of who I was. I couldn't show people that I was a good person. I couldn't show people all the things that I could do. I'm intelligent, but it doesn't come across when you talk like a three-year-old. You sound stupid. And some people treat you like you're stupid because you sound like it. I mean, they don't know. They're not trying to be mean. They're just talking to you like you talk to them. So that was actually really difficult for me to live in this space of having nobody know me and maybe being treated like a less intelligent person. <laughs> that was, a, yeah, definitely. And not being able to serve. I came to serve and I had this idea that I was going to, you know, talk to people about Jesus and be this missionary like my heroes. But I didn't realize the journey that it takes so much in order to actually identify with the people and to win their trust so that you can actually speak some of those deeper truths into their lives. And I suppose that's a reminder for those of us, again, who live in Western countries, who speak English, and we see migrants coming to our country who battle with our language because you were saying earlier that Hungarian is a very difficult language. Well, I'm told that English is a very difficult language for people from outside our world to step into. 
And sometimes there is that sense that people that have come from another place are, are treated like they're stupid, even though they're not. And so I guess that gave you a window into to their lives as well. Yes, for sure. I feel like I can really identify with immigrants because you're so vulnerable. And me coming here, I was in a position that was so vulnerable. It's, it would have been really easy for somebody to take advantage of me or to trick me or to use the system here against me, which I also have seen. Like here as a non-citizen, I pay double for some of the fees or for a tax than people who have citizenship, which is fine, but it makes it harder. And so I really do identify with just the struggle of trying to adapt, but at the same time, realizing that you're vulnerable to people who are dishonest or people who want to take advantage of that. And I think that my husband was, Danny is his name. Danny was such a vital part in just standing next to me and being a person that kept cheering me on and telling me that I could do it. And I also had one or two girlfriends who were so patient and would just sit with me and let me babble in Serbian and really encourage me to keep going. And today I am fluent. I'm fluent in Serbian. So it is possible and you can do it. But yes, the journey of an immigrant is not, is definitely not an easy one. In those early days, there's those external things that are going on, that not being able to communicate, not knowing the systems, that everything works so differently from what you understand. I imagine that they're the external things, but it would cause a lot of internal chaos within you. Tell me about that. Yes, you're absolutely right. My inside world wasn't that different from my outside world. So all my thoughts were jumbled because I'm trying to figure out this language that has different word endings, that the grammar is so different. And so my I, my brain was completely not distracted, but all of, all of my brain power was given to these things like to go to the store and to buy milk and to figure out what the milk looked like. Is it in a bottle or is it in a box? Is it white or is it blue? But there's a blue kind and a red kind. So which milk, what's the difference in those milks? All this brain power just to buy milk. So my brain was exhausted all the time. I actually reached a point where I was convinced that I had mono because I was so exhausted. So I went to the doctor and I couldn't even get up the stairs at the doctor. And I thought, that's it. I have mono. And all my blood work came back perfect. <laughs> and it wasn't until after that I learned about uh, some of these things that they talk about when you immigrate to a new country, that all the fatigue and all of the energy that goes into adapting, that that can be a common thing, which I didn't know at the time. But yes, my also psychologically, I felt really lost and I felt like people didn't see me just because I couldn't communicate. And it was also bringing up a lot of deeper issues in my heart with the Lord, which is interesting, but he always, he never wastes any opportunities. And maybe one, one story would illustrate that really well would be uh, Danny, my husband, he really enjoys being parts of programs for adults with additional needs. And so he got this idea to volunteer at this club for people with additional needs, special needs. And so I was not excited about it because I knew that would mean I would have to interact in Serbian and it would be difficult. I just knew it. And, and it was every week that we went, I dreaded going, I hated being there. There was a man there who spoke Hungarian and Serbian fluently, and he spoke some English. Okay. So he had a learning disability and he was there and he was talking to Danny and I was at the other, other table and I could hear. And I, at this point I could understand, but I wasn't fast enough to respond or I couldn't necessarily respond. My understanding was 
way far ahead of my speaking. And he said, hey, how come she is here and she's supposed to be like smarter than me, but she doesn't know Serbian? And it hit me and all this pride in my heart welled up. And I thought, oh my gosh, he is, this guy who has a learning disability is actually smarter than me. And that was so hard for me to accept. And I know that now looking back, it was the Lord that was using it to break down some of the walls in my heart that were so prideful. I mean, it's such a prideful thing. And it's even very embarrassing to talk about. And I talk about it in my book, because I don't think I'm the only one. But it is embarrassing to admit, you know, that I was, I thought I was better than this man. The Lord definitely used it to bring the sin or the the things inside my life that were unhealthy that needed attention. So there he is with this learning disability that stops him yeah. from fully entering into what's going on. And God is pointing out, but there's something that's stopping you from fully entering in as well. You're both in the same place. It must have been incredibly difficult. And there's many other things that you explain in the book of how life has been hard. But tell me about some of those glimmers of hope. Even before you became fluent in Serbian, uh, even as you're walking a, a very difficult road, where were some of the glimmers of hope that reminded you that God was still walking with you? There's a lot of those as well. There was a time when I, it was actually when I moved to Kyrgyzstan and I was getting into the airport and I couldn't read any of the signs because they were in Russian, which is Cyrillic letters. It's a different alphabet. I couldn't read any of the signs. I didn't know what I was doing and my ride didn't show up that was supposed to pick me up. And I thought, oh man, all these taxi drivers were yelling at me and I didn't understand them. And I just wanted to go back home and it was hot and I was sweaty. And then this taxi driver came up and he said, can I practice my English with you? And I said, what? <laughs> I don't need a taxi. And he said, no, I just want to sit and practice my English. I see your ride's not here. You can sit with me. And we just sat and he just talked with me. I don't know what we talked about. I can't remember. But he just talked with me and he was so kind and he didn't take advantage of me or even ask for money or it was no kind of a, you know, to get me to drive in his taxi. So I had to pay him, nothing like that. He just wanted to sit with me. And then my ride ended up coming about an hour and a half later and he said goodbye and he left. And that really sticks in my mind as a moment that God was really with me. I really believe that God sent that man and that man became this just moment of peace within the chaos. And I've had a lot of those just moments of peace. Sometimes, often, it's a person that the Lord has brought. They could be a believer. This man, I don't know if he was a believer or not. We didn't talk about faith things. But I do believe that the Lord brought him just to remind me that God is with me, that he's always with me, and that he sees, that he really does see the situation and that he cares. Tell me a little bit more about writing the book. What was it that made you decide to write a book? And why did you decide to write a book on some of the hard things that you've had to endure? I've always loved writing, but most of it has been contained in my journal, and I haven't shared a lot of it. And then I would share a few things with Danny from my journal. And he said at one point, you know, I think that some of these things are too good just to be kept inside the pages of your journal. I think that other people would be really encouraged. And I was also coming up with some of these stories and sharing stories with other people. And I realized as I shared some of these specific stories that it really encouraged a couple of my other friends who were moving 
into other countries or into a situation that was a different language or a different culture that they had to learn. And so I thought, well, I'm willing to talk about these things in an honest way. Maybe I should. Maybe I should write a book. And the Lord really opened up the door and through a, a friend who's a copy editor, she offered to help me and to help me edit my book and really to not just edit it, but be a mentor for me. And I think without her, I wouldn't have done it. She really encouraged me that I do have talent as a writer and that I can do it. And she really gave me a lot of guidelines about uh, where to start and how to write a book. The main inspiration behind writing the book is that I wanted to talk about all of the hard things. But as I say in the title, that hard is only half the story, that there's a whole other half when I'm willing to enter into the unknown, that it's such an opportunity for God to enrich my life through people around me, and also through the way that my trust in Him is deepened as I'm going from this chaos into being recreated into a person that hopefully looks more like Jesus and hopefully has some of the junk or some of the sin or some of the darkness within me stripped away through these experiences. So I really wanted to talk about that, how the Lord is with us when we go when we take the leap to, to go into the unknown and how it can really be an enriching experience through the hard things. Tell me a little about how life looks now. You've mentioned that you moved to the center of Serbia and that things are very different there now. You're fluent in, in Serbia and I'm sure that there are still hard things that you have to encounter. But what does it look like now? What is your day to day? Yes, they're definitely still hard things. And fluent doesn't mean perfect. I would just like to say that. I still make a lot of grammar mistakes. I, I still have an accent. So, And I actually <laughs> accidentally taught. We have a four-and-a-half-year-old son, and my husband speaks to him in Serbian. I speak to him in English. But I accidentally put the wrong ending on the word for bottom or for butt. And I taught him how to say ass, which I wasn't, I didn't mean to. So and then he's going around <laughs> saying this. And my husband one day said, you know that that's the word ass, right? <laughs> and I said, oh man, I had no idea. So you still make these embarrassing mistakes. But I found that that makes you real to other people if they really, if they see kind of that you're normal and make these mistakes. Anyway, that was a side story. But um, <laughs> life now looks like... So my husband is the one of the elders at our little local church. There's about 10, uh, 15, there's about 15 adults in our church. And we're in a city of 200,000 people. It's the only Protestant church in the whole city. Serbian Eastern Orthodox is the predominant religion here. So we are working in a background with people who have a faith background, but some differences that are, are key. So we're considered a cult here and lumped in with Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Satanists. We're all in the same group. So that can make it really difficult to share our faith from the missionary side of things. It's all about one-on-one relationships. I'm trying to pursue my writing more. So I spend more time writing these days. Uh, my husband is getting his master's degree. So he's studying uh, a lot. And I'm also starting a new venture this spring, which is a community garden. We have a little piece of land outside the city and I'm going to start a garden. So that's going to be a new with some of the ladies from, from my community. I guess that gives you an opportunity to, again, be part of the community, not just here to, I need to share my story, but to be part of that community and walk alongside people rather than just be 
trying to, to share something with them that they may or may not want to be interested in. Exactly. Yes. Relate. It's all about relationships. People here are very good at relationships. They're all about people. If you go out to have coffee with somebody, you're going to sit for two or three hours and they're just going to ask about you and your family and your relatives. And I really appreciate that about the Serbian people. I love that about them. And they've taught me so much about putting the person above the task and the relationship above the thing to be done. So I'm really looking forward to just continuing to to live here with them, but also to have a garden as an opportunity to maybe create a job for somebody who needs a job or to create a place where somebody can go who's maybe struggling with mental health out into nature or those kind of things. So anyway, I'm excited about, about this new venture, but you're absolutely right. It's about walking next to people. And I imagine that when you first turned up, like you would have understood to some degree that you're here to, to work alongside people, but you would be understanding more and more that, you know what, we can learn from the people around us, whether they share our faith or not. There are things and, and the way that they live their life that actually don't affect our faith, but affect our life in a daily basis. And those things that you're talking about of being able to sit down with someone, of of building relationship, th- there seems to be a lot in there that would resonate with that early church of spending time with one another. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, they get it. I think that there's, just speak for myself, but a Messiah complex that I for sure had coming in thinking that I'm going to save them or even that quote that I actually hate now, <laughs> but that a lot of, I hear a lot in the missionary world, like don't, don't give them a fish, but teach them how to fish. I think it goes something like that. And I just don't like it anymore because I'm thinking, man, these people might be fishing already and they might be a better fisherman than you. Maybe you should just go and sit next to them and see how they fish and then kind of add your technique of fishing or just talk about them. But it's it's so easy just to, for me, and it comes down to that, doesn't it? It's so easy for me to think I'm better than them or that I know better or just because I know Jesus that I know better but it could be that I just know Jesus and I just need to start talking about Jesus and how he has affected my life. And as they see that Jesus really is affecting my life and the decisions that I make really are influenced by my relationship with him, I think those are the most powerful things that it really rarely is my actual words or the things that I know. It's actually the spirit of God alive in my life that's powerful. And it's really an opportunity to say this is not about changing your lifestyle. This is about introducing you to the person of Jesus Christ, allowing the Holy Spirit to actually make the changes we're needed in someone's life. Yes, yes. And it's such a process. So this is years of being able to just, as Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. And that's all he said, and then walked with them for years. I really do think that It's not about, like you said, even pointing out all the things that need to be changed in their lifestyle, but allowing the Spirit to work in them as they say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and then figure out what that means, and you're really a friend that's next to them and a support, and sometimes give advice if they ask, but that's the exception, I think. Wendy, I am sure that there are people that want to learn more about your story and hear more about the experiences that you've been through. If people are wanting to contact you, where's the easiest place for them to get in touch? 
I'm at the beginning of my journey as an author and these kind of things. So the best place right now would be Instagram or Facebook. It's just my name, Wendy Zahoriansky. You're probably going to put that in the show notes so they know how to spell it. I'm working on a website, which will also be just my first and last name. And those, those would be the best places. My book is coming out in the next few months. So that's also going to be on my website. And it will be a link for it on Instagram and Facebook as well. As you mentioned, I certainly will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can find you easily and hear more of your story and connect with you and so that they'll know firsthand when that book comes out. But Wendy, it has been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much as well. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.